I know many of you have told me that you don't like driving at night. I don't really like driving at night either. I can remember I was on a trip a couple years ago. I was in a wedding in New Hampshire, and I drove up there with my friend Jake. We went and saw some different sites on our way there, including Niagara Falls, and we ended up getting to New Hampshire pretty late at night, and we picked up the rest of the groomsmen party, and they were on my car. Now, New Hampshire is a little bit geographically different than Indiana is. It's got mountains and hills, and I think they put everything far away from each other and up on a hill to keep it away from everything else. And Indiana is just flat, and you know where everything is, and that's why I live here, because it's just so much easier to navigate around. But as I was driving, it was late at night, and it was raining, of course, and I was trying to get to our destination. So I asked the groom where, you know, what the address was for the little cottage we were staying in. I said, I'll put it into my GPS. He said, oh, you don't need to. I'll just give you the directions. And so I have no idea where I am, and I'm in a car full of guys driving, and it is just absolutely silent. And I can remember I have my brights on trying to see what's ahead of me, but as you're going through the roads, you can't really see too much, especially when you're driving in the mountains. I could only see what was right ahead of me. And I'll never forget, everyone else was just silent. And as I was driving down that road, the groomsmen would say, okay, turn left here, turn left here. And then he would give me the directions for where I needed to go. And it was frightening and it was scary. And luckily we made it to our destination. Okay. I said, we're not doing any more night driving in the mountains. It's scary when you can't see what is ahead of you, isn't it? It is a little bit terrifying to not know what the next thing is that is coming in front of you. And I think we have to confess that as a church, sometimes it can be hard to see the future. Sometimes we don't like change. I know for some of you that might be true. Some of you might like change a lot and might enjoy new things. Some of you, as Linda's shaking her head no, may not like change. And you kind of like things the way... They have been. Like I said, it is frightening to not know what the future is sometimes. Well, I'm here to tell you what the future for our church is. Okay? And I didn't get it in a dream or some kind of mystic prophecy or anything. But for the year 2022, I want our focus to be on proclaiming Christ. That's the theme for the year. That's what I want our focus to be on. Proclaiming Christ. Now you might say, well, that doesn't really give us very many answers of what this new ministry is going to look like. And there's things that are unknown to us. I'm obviously very different from Pastor Reed in a couple different ways. And as Henry said, that's not a bad thing. And I don't apologize for that. He was a great pastor, but we are definitely two different people. And our church is entering into a different phase of its life and ministry. And that's okay. I've appreciated hearing stories and being part of this church's past and seeing pictures and all the wonderful things that this church has been able to do for the gospel. And we definitely do not forget those. We do not toss those aside. We don't want to forget any of those memories. But yet we don't want to dwell on those. We don't want to focus on those. This morning is a morning for us to think about the future. This morning is a morning for us to think about what Sycamore Bible Church is going to be known for even in 2022. And before I sound like some kind of political candidate that's running for office, once again, I'll assure you that our future is proclaiming Christ. You see, when you're focused on proclaiming Christ, you can see what's ahead of you. You can set your focus on 
what lies in front of you. And there are many different roads and paths we will have to travel on together. But I can say this, that by God's grace, I believe he will always be there to faithfully guide us and lead us for whatever the future looks like. So we ask ourselves, what will define this church? And while the pastor definitely sets the tone for the church, he preaches the word faithfully, expositionally, and I want to assure you that I plan to do that. In a couple weeks, I will be preaching through the book of Titus, and we'll be starting that series together. But I wanted to do a couple sermons to start out on our future and what God has in store for us. We have a mission statement as a church, and it says this. We exist to make disciples by digging our roots deep into God's word. It's what we've decided our focus is going to be. And I'm not replacing that. That's a perfectly fine statement. This year, we're going to focus on proclaiming Christ, especially here in Trafalgar, Indiana. And I want to focus our attention on not what we're going to be doing, but who we are going to be doing it for And that is Jesus Christ. So if you haven't been able to figure it out, the main idea of my text, what I want us to focus on is this, that we must proclaim Jesus Christ in this church. We must proclaim Jesus Christ in this church. And we see that very clearly in Colossians chapter 1. I love this passage of scripture. This passage is what I base my philosophy and ministry on. That's what I believe ministry should consist of or should be about as a pastor because it very clearly lays out what the goal of ministry is and how we are to do ministry. Whenever I think of this text, I think of other pastors who I've served with, who I've learned from, and who have modeled this text very well. And I pray that we can do the same in our church. I read the previous passage earlier on Christ and Paul's poem or some call it a hymn on Christ there in Colossians chapter 1. Christ is a predominant theme in the book of Colossians because the church in Colossae had an issue. They had some false teaching that was slipping into their church that was challenging their thinking on Christ. And there were some who were saying that Christ was not the Son of God but that he was just some kind of powerful creature, that he might have been an angel, or that he might have been some other created being. And so Paul, very clearly in the passage we read earlier, says that Christ was not created, but he is the firstborn of all creation. That means he is placed over creation. That Christ is the image of the invisible God. That he is God and That he took part in creation. All things were created by him and through him. But then he tells us this in verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He reminds us that Christ is the one who is head of our church. It's not the pastor. It's not the steering committee or whatever other kind of leadership the church might have. It is Jesus Christ. He is the head of the body of the church. And then in verses 21 through 23, it shows who we are, how we have been brought from a place of alienation, from a place where we were far away from Christ, and how through his death on the cross, we were brought into fellowship 
with him. And this is our identity now in Christ. And so now Paul starts to explain his ministry to the Colossians. And I want us to see four ways we can proclaim Christ here at our church. First of all, we can proclaim Christ in suffering. We can proclaim Christ in suffering. Now you might say this is not a great way to start out the sermon, Pastor Lance, but this is what the text says. Look at with me at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Paul, we know, faced a variety of different sufferings. He was beaten, he was imprisoned. In fact, he's writing this book of Colossians from prison at this moment. He was tried wrongly by the Romans. He had all of these different things happen to him, but yet he did not despair in his sufferings, but he rejoiced in his sufferings. I want to just say, Paul was not a masochist. He did not have, he was not crazy. But yet he had a godly and a biblical perspective on his suffering. That word rejoice means to have a happy spirit or a good peace of mind. Paul wasn't worried about this suffering and he didn't let it discourage him. And that's a good reminder for us as well that sometimes we can become so obsessed with our suffering that we lose track of the good things that God is doing for us. Sue said so in prayer today, how she's just been thankful for the many requests that she has seen God answer for her. And I'm sure we can all say that, that as we take a step back, we can see how good God has been to us, even in some of our trials. Paul dealt with a variety of different types of suffering, yet he would not let these discourage him. He rather said he would rejoice in them. Why does he rejoice in these sufferings? Well, he gives us two reasons, and the first one is a little bit tricky. He says, for I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We got to be careful with what Paul is saying here, because there are some who would say that he's talking about Christ's afflictions on the cross, and that Paul is somehow adding to that, or that Paul is somehow taking part in Christ's afflictions on the cross, that he died for us for our sins. That's a little bit dangerous. We don't want to think that way. That word that he uses for afflictions is actually never used in the New Testament to talk about Christ's suffering on the cross. It's used to describe other types of suffering, usually with Paul. So I don't think Paul is talking about Christ's sufferings on the cross. So what does he mean that he's filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, in Acts chapter 9, you know, Paul was Saul before he was Paul, if that makes sense. And he was persecuting the church there. And then Jesus, we know, appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And Paul was saved. He was blinded. He was saved. He had new life in Christ. And as Jesus talks to Ananias and tells him to go to Paul, he says in verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias is there and he's worried. I don't want to go to this guy named Paul and try to tell him, you know, to follow me. He's been persecuting Christians. And one of Jesus's encouragements to him is that Paul was going to experience some suffering for the sake of Christ. He'd saved Paul. He's going to use Paul, but he'd also have a ministry marked by 
suffering. And so Paul knew that he would have some suffering in his life. And I believe what he's saying here is that he is taking parts of the fellowship of suffering that others have suffered for the cause of Christ. Paul was not the only person who would suffer for Jesus. In fact, all the other apostles in some way were martyred, except for John, who was poisoned and then exiled to the island of Patmos to die. And so I don't think he really got off the hook with that. All of the disciples, all of the apostles, were suffered in some kind of way for the cause of Christ. And I think Paul is saying that he's joining in, he's filling up with those people. He's joining in to that suffering with them. So he does this to fill up the afflictions of Christ, but then he also says in, at the end of verse 24, for the sake of his body, that is the church, Paul willingly suffered for the church, for the Colossians. And in fact, Paul probably never was able to take a trip to the Colossians. He, at least at this point, had not visited them personally. So these were people he didn't even know, yet Paul said he was suffering for them. And in fact, he was suffering for the entire universal church. He was willing to suffer for the church because he loved them and because he cared about them. In Sunday school last week, we talked about Jesus being the good shepherd. Now the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, how he protects the sheep that are his. Remember, there was one piece of the illustration that Christ used that was the hired hand. And it was a person who was hired to watch after the sheep, but notice he did not lay down his life for the sheep. He was not the one that would die for the sheep and he would not protect them even from the wolves. There are some who love the church and are part of the church, but they're not willing to suffer for the church like Paul did. Paul was willing to suffer for his church and he even ended up giving his life for it at the very end. And so I ask you this morning, what is your perspective on suffering? What is your perspective on persecution that is brought your way? We all face various trials and testings in our Christian life, and some people's trials are different than others. Maybe you've experienced a great deal of suffering and hardship in your life. Maybe you haven't. That's okay. Suffering is somewhat subjective to the person's experience. So what's a big deal for someone might not be a big deal for another person, but yet it's still hard. We need to be willing to understand that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Too often we can think, well, this person hasn't had it too bad, or this person hasn't had it, you know, as bad as I did when I was their age. Yeah, but it's still hard for them as well. What has God brought you through? What kind of suffering, what kind of trials are you dealing with in your life? And are you willing to suffer more for the church? We are not promised an easy life as believers. We are not promised a good life, as some people might say. Now, in heaven, we will obviously have the good life with Christ. But we are not promised an easy life here on earth. But we are told that we will suffer. In fact, Paul tells Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. What are you willing to go through for your church? I'm not saying you will have to lay down your life for your church necessarily 
But I'm also not saying that you may not have to at some point. We all may face persecution in the future. What are you willing to do for your church? And also, what suffering are you going through at this very moment that you need to change your perspective on? What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes when we are in the midst of suffering, it can be very easy for us to narrow our focus on ourselves and not worry about anyone else around us and say, God has put me through this. I don't have time to deal with anyone else. I don't have time to proclaim Christ. I just need to focus on myself. And that is a wrong perspective on suffering. Yes, we need help. We need help from God. And there are things that happen in our lives that cannot be avoided. But notice Paul, how even through the midst of his suffering, what was his focus on? Proclaiming Christ. What was he doing? He was ministering to the church. He was finding ways to proclaim Christ even from prison. Paul probably did more in prison than most of us will probably do for Christ in our entire lives. And that is just fascinating to think about. Suffering is real. Suffering is hard. And I am not minimizing that by any stretch of the imagination. But sometimes God calls us to still proclaim him and still be a testimony for him, even in the midst of our trials and hardships. I believe this was the practice of Paul. And I think this should be the practice for ourselves as well. Well, how can we do this? How can we use our suffering to proclaim the name of Christ? Well, who can you share your testimony with? Who in the hospital? Who in your neighborhood can you talk to about the gospel? How can you turn your suffering into an avenue for evangelism and for telling others who Christ actually is? If we as a church are going to proclaim Christ, we're going to have to do so in suffering. Because in some way, I'm sure we will all face suffering, even in the future. We also must proclaim Christ by preaching the gospel. Proclaim Christ by preaching the gospel. Look with me at verse 25. Speaking of the church in verse 24, because now he's describing it. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of from God that was given to me for you. So Paul starts talking about his own ministry as an apostle. And he says he is a minister for the church. He is a servant of the church. That word servant has the idea of being an agent or being used, a tool used by God for the church. And he says this is part of God's stewardship. That word for stewardship is actually where we get the word for dispensation. We're known as a church for being dispensationalists. I know that's a big word, but it talks about God's plan for the ages. And if you want more information, you can read our doctrinal statement or ask me later about that. But it's the same word that we get that idea from, that God has a stewardship, that God has a way that he is governing the world. God has a plan for the world. And Paul was part of God's plan for the church. He was given this ministry as a stewardship from God. And again, I'll point out that anyone who does ministry in any capacity, pastor, Sunday school teacher, deacon, steering committee member, elder, they do so under the stewardship of God, knowing that it is his 
church. And Paul understood that. He understood that he was just part of the larger stewardship of God, his management for the church. I, a couple years ago, was put in charge of watching my pastor's dog. I lived with them in Virginia, and they had the coolest dog that I'd ever seen. His name was Spurgeon. He was a brown lab border collie mix, and he was just a very awesome dog. He's actually the reason I got my dog, Mac, because I just love Spurgeon and the companionship that we had, and I wanted a dog just like him. Now, Mac is dark brown like Spurgeon is, but he's not quite as gifted as Spurgeon was, even though I love him. But Spurgeon could open doors. He could go up to the door, put his paw on the handle, and open it, and then you could tell him to go close the door, and he would go close it for you. He was quite a remarkable dog. He was very obedient, and I can remember being put in charge of watching him, and he was uh, one of those dogs that you could tell he had a very alpha dog pack mentality. Pastor Ben was the alpha dog. He was part of the pack And then when Pastor Ben was gone, I became the alpha dog, which was really kind of cool because he followed me around and we were even on a walk one day. There's another dog that kind of started running at us and Spurgeon stood in between that dog and me to protect me because I was the alpha. He was an amazing dog. And in fact, I think he probably watched me more than I watched him during that time. But I can remember trying to make sure that I took good care of him because he was kind of allowed to roam the place like they didn't have a fence but he wasn't going to run away so there were some times where I'd wonder where Spurgeon went and again he could open doors so it was kind of hard to keep him in the house with that I can remember feeling the pressure of trying to take good care of him because I knew they loved their dog when Pastor Ben came back though and I found this so interesting I immediately was not the alpha dog anymore now he still loved me and was obedient to me but Pastor Ben became the alpha once again He became the one that he would follow around. He became the one that he would serve and do things for. I was not the alpha dog anymore. And that points out, again, what we have been saying, that any of us that have a ministry in the church are only stewards of that ministry from God. It is his church. It is not ours. And friends, when he comes back to the world, everyone will recognize him as king. Everyone will know that he is the one who is truly in charge. Now notice his ministry. To make the word of God fully known. To reveal the word of God is kind of what that implies there. Paul's ministry was to explain the Bible, was to make it known, and specifically to the Gentiles. And we will talk about that in a moment. He was to preach the gospel. He was to explain God's word. And again, anyone who is at this pulpit preaching or teaching only does so as long as they preach the Bible. None of you care about anything that I have to say if it's not from God's word. It's not inspired by him or based on his principles. And you shouldn't unless it is based on God's word. Paul's ministry was to make the word of God fully known. Look with me at verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That word mystery is such an interesting word. Paul uses it several times throughout the New Testament to refer to some different cult-like groups. They had these mysteries or these secret rites. It reminds me a little bit of the Masons and now they have this higher knowledge type thing. And Paul was explaining this mystery 
to them. And the Colossians would have immediately thought of that, of these groups that had this higher knowledge. And they were, in fact, attacking the church and saying, we are the ones you should go to. We have this higher knowledge of God than anyone else, and you have to go to us to be able to understand that. And this was hurting the church that he was ministering to. So as Paul uses the word mystery here, he immediately catches everyone's attention in the room as to what is that mystery going to be about. So what is this mystery that is here? What well, says it's hidden for ages and generations in the past. So in the Old Testament, those before Christ, this was something not revealed to them. This was something they did not understand. They had no knowledge of this before. But now it was being revealed. <clears throat> it says, now it is being revealed to his saints. Look with me at verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory. So he starts explaining this, that this mystery has to do with the Gentile people understanding the riches of his glory, the riches of Christ. They are now able to understand that and comprehend that. Before we go any farther, I just want to point out that unless you have some kind of Jewish heritage in your bloodline, that most of us in the room would be Gentiles. So this is talking about us, people who are not of the Jewish nation. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What was so mysterious that they had not understood in the Old Testament, but that they could understand now, it was the very presence of the gospel in the Colossians. The fact that this Gentile people group could know and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That they could have union with Christ like we talked about in Sunday school this morning. That they could know and understand who Jesus was. That they were sinners and that they needed the gospel to save them from their sins. That is Christ in them. But this doesn't just apply to the Colossians. It applied to all of the Gentiles and it applies to us as well. The beautiful and wonderful mystery of the gospel is that you and I can have a relationship with God. That even though we have sinned against God and broken his law, that through the gospel, through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, we can have a relationship with him. We can have Christ in us. That's a wonderful, beautiful mystery. We sang about this this morning, didn't we? Come behold the wondrous mystery. This mystery of the gospel. And I love how that song walks you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how that is such a great mystery. But the mystery part is that we have access to that now for ourselves. Something that the Old Testament saints would not have understood, but it is now being revealed. This beautiful mystery is the gospel and it is available to all nations. And we must be faithful to proclaim that gospel. We must be faithful to share that gospel with others, even in Trafalgar, Indiana, even with people who may not understand it yet, who may not have had any contact with the gospel before. We must tell them who Jesus Christ actually is and what he has done for us and what that means for them as well. We must believe the gospel before we can do any of that. 
We must believe that Christ has died for us and that we can have a relationship with him. Most of us in the room, most of you in the room, will probably not preach in the way that I do. You may not be able to teach a Sunday school class necessarily. You may not share the gospel like Paul did. But all of us can proclaim Christ. All of us have people around us that we can share the gospel with. And all of us can proclaim Christ in this community and be part of this effort to proclaim the name of Christ in ways that I probably couldn't. You know people that I don't know, family members, friends, co-workers, people that I don't have access to, that I don't have that relationship with. You have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. What are you doing to proclaim Christ even here in Trafalgar, Indiana? And though it's not a huge city, there are still people who need to hear the gospel. And you might say, well, I live in Franklin. Well, there's people in Franklin that need to hear the gospel too. And all the other little towns that are around this church, there are people who need to know what Christ has done for them and to take part in this mystery. Look with me at verse 28. We get now to what I think is the main verb that is controlling this text, the point that Paul is trying to get across. He says, him we proclaim. Talking about Christ. You could rephrase that to say, we proclaim Christ. That was the center of Paul's ministry. That was what Paul was trying to do. It was the message he was bringing to others. His life, his focus was on proclaiming Christ. To proclaim means to bring or declare a message. We can proclaim Christ in a variety of different ways. In our worship service, we can worship Christ. In our teaching, we can explain who Christ is. We can talk about Christ. But this has the idea of bringing people a message that they need to understand. There are people who need to know who Jesus Christ is. And this was the center of Paul's ministry, proclaiming this message. This was the most important part about Paul. And it should be what defines us as well. We proclaim Christ. And then notice what he says under that. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. That idea of warning actually comes from the word that we get counseling or neuthetic counseling from. It means to admonish or to bring to mind. And so we can proclaim Christ in counseling others or of warning them of what is to come. He also says we can proclaim Christ in teaching. In teaching people the Bible, in teaching people who Christ was, and in sharing Christ with others. These are things that we can do to proclaim the name of Christ. But notice that last phrase, with all wisdom. And this brings us to our third point, that we must proclaim Christ in or with wisdom. What am I saying when I say that? I'm saying that there are some ways that people try to proclaim Christ that are not wise, that are not using discernment. And I don't probably have to give you many examples of what I'm talking about. There are people who love Jesus, who love God, who want to preach him faithfully, but they're not wise in how they proclaim Christ. 
And we must be careful that our zeal for proclaiming the gospel and our fervor for evangelism does not overshadow the need for being wise. I've talked to many people, and I used to go to a Baptist church before I came to this one that's just Baptistic in heritage. But as I would tell people and share the gospel with them, and I'd say that I was a Baptist, I would immediately have to start explaining to them how I wasn't a person who went to a Westboro Baptist church or one of those Baptist churches that had been in the news for something that was not wise, for something that was not helpful for the cause of Christ. We must be careful that as we proclaim Christ, that we do so with wisdom, that we do so wisely. There are many people who have tried to proclaim Christ that have, act- that have actually brought shame to his name, either on accident or through their own actions. There are pastors who have fallen from ministry for a variety of different reasons who did not proclaim Christ wisely. So as we think about this theme and our excitement, and I want us to be excited about this idea of proclaiming Christ, we must remember that we must do so wisely. We must be wise in how we counsel people. We must be wise in how we teach people as well. And this idea of wisdom describes all of that. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. Is that people would be brought to maturity in Christ. That word for mature actually means to be perfect. I'm not saying that any of us are going to be perfect in this lifetime. But all of us are striving to get to the point where we can stand before God one day and be found perfect. He's the one that is making us perfect. He's the one that is working in our lives to perfect us in Christ. But this is the goal of ministry. This is how we proclaim Christ, by warning and teaching others with wisdom so that they can be brought to this point of spiritual maturity or of perfection. How do you proclaim Christ here in this community? Are there people that you need to warn of what's coming, that you need to counsel maybe? Are there people that you need to teach who Christ is? You might be surprised. You might think that everyone knows who Christ is. I'm finding more and more people, even people from Christian families who I talk to, that have no idea who Jesus actually is. We're getting past the days of everyone knowing who Jesus was, everybody going to Sunday school and hearing these Bible stories. And I talk to people now, and they have no idea what the Bible is, who Jesus was, is, what it means to them. We must be faithful to teach them. But again, we must do this wisely. We must do this with wisdom. Again, there are many who try to proclaim Christ, but who do so without using the Bible. There are many who try to grow their church without actually preaching the Bible to people. Well, what do they do? Well, they try to attract people with gimmicks and other types of things to draw people in with shallow theology. And they don't preach the Bible, but they preach whatever they have on their mind for that day. They tell people what they want to hear, knowing that it will attract them. And this is a big problem within the church today. You can draw a large crowd of people by telling them what they want 
to hear. That does not mean you are proclaiming Christ faithfully. And it certainly does not mean that you are proclaiming Christ wisely. There are some people who know the true gospel, who want to proclaim it to others, but they fail to do so in love. They fail to show people the love of Christ. They understand the Bible and theology, but they care maybe more about their wars on Facebook and on social media than they do with their relationship that they're trying to build with another person. As I've said, I desire for this church to proclaim Christ in our community. It's what we sang about today. That's what our focus is. We must be careful. We must be wise. We could do a lot to try to grow our church numerically, and some of that would not be a bad thing necessarily, but we must, be rem- we must remember what the focus is, and that is not to have every seat in this room packed out with people, but it is to proclaim Jesus and to do it accurately, telling people who he is and what his message implies. And as you share the gospel with others, you will notice that sometimes they are not responsive to it. People don't like being told that they are sinners. People don't, don't, people don't like being told that they've sinned against God and that he is holding them accountable. We have this monumental task of proclaiming Christ. And in and of ourselves, we are unable to do it. And so we need something to help us. We need something to keep us going. And that brings us to the final thing I want us to see in this passage, that we must proclaim Christ through his power. We've been given this great mission from God to make the name of Christ known to the nations, known to those around us. But we couldn't do this in our own strength. Look with me at verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul says, this is my mission. This is my focus. This is what I am working for. This is why I am running the race. But I can't do any of this in and of myself. So he says, I'm struggling. I keep going. And I'm sure for Paul, there were days where it was a struggle to keep going in the Christian life. But what kept him focused? What kept him going? It was his energy. Talking about Christ. The energy, the power of Christ kept Paul going. And friends, we must depend on Christ as well. He gives us the energy, he gives us the ability to do what needs to be done. He gives us the power we need to keep on going. There will be things, I'm sure, in your Christian life where you wonder, how could I get through this? How could I ever overcome this? Well, we do so in Christ, not in ourselves. He is the one that is powerfully working in us. Paul would go on to explain this concept even further in chapter 2 of Colossians. But this small verse that our passage ends with has so many great ways that applies to us as well. There are so many people who try to do ministry in their own power and in their own strength, and they end up getting burnt out. They end up getting worn out. How could we ever hope to accomplish the proclamation of Christ on our own? Well, we can't do it by ourselves. We need Jesus Christ to strengthen us. We need him to keep on, to keep us going. So how does God work in us? Does he give us batteries that we plug in and that keeps us going? Do we get an energy drink or something? 
Well, first of all, we pray. And again, as we've talked about, prayer is not just getting whatever I want, but it is our will aligning with God's will. It is, our, it is us acknowledging that we are dependent on God for what we need. We need to pray, recognizing that there's nothing we can do on our own, but we are dependent on the Father. Do you know how I know that is true? Do you know how I know that we all need prayer? Because what do we see Jesus do time and time again in his ministry? It says he withdrew himself to pray to the Father. It talks about how he would stay up all night praying to God the Father. And if Christ needed to pray, then I guarantee you and I need to pray as well. We must also trust him with the outcome. We know that God has a plan. He has a stewardship for our lives. Sometimes this plan doesn't look like what you and I necessarily want or had envisioned, but we know it's God's plan. We must be willing to trust him with whatever the outcome is. So many times we can become worried because we are trying to do everything ourselves when we really need to trust in Christ. So I'm going to conclude our message this morning by asking ourselves this question. How can our church proclaim Christ? How can we proclaim Christ here in Trafalgar, Indiana? Well, first of all, we can do it through preaching. We can do it through preaching. Again, there's only one person preaching to you this morning. We must make sure that our preaching and our proclamation of the gospel is centered on Christ. Henry spoke last week, and he said, one of my responsibilities as pastor is to feed you the word, and I promise to do that faithfully to the best of my ability. Preaching Christ, making sure that he is the one who is on display every time someone steps into the pulpit, and every time we proclaim Christ to the world. Secondly, in our worship, we can proclaim Christ. Singing songs centered on the gospel. We have some great songs that we sing here. I love our time in worship together where we sing of Christ, but making sure that we sing songs that reflect the character and nature of Christ and what he has done for us. We've introduced some new songs. I love hymns and we sing a lot of hymns. I hope to continue to introduce new songs that are focused on Christ and who he is and what he has done. Thirdly, in evangelism, can proclaim Christ by sharing that message with other people, sharing it with people who need to know him, who may not have a relationship with him. We can share with others the love that Christ has for us. Fourthly, in discipleship, having intentional relationships with other people in our church and in our communities, proclaiming Christ to them, Showing them who he is, why he is worthy of our praise and our devotion to him. And lastly, we can proclaim Christ in our lives. Making that the focus of our entire lives, that we proclaim Christ. This is something worth dedicating yourself to. This is something worth suffering for, as Paul said. And this is what we want to be our focus for this year? How can we proclaim Christ? By sharing his word with others who need it and then remembering that message for ourselves.